guys have been, a lot of you hanging around long enough to know um, that something that I say a lot is that Jesus has a life for you. Have you heard that in here? Say that. Jesus has a life for you. That's just a deep conviction that we have. That isn't just a line that we say to fill up some space and take some oxygen. Like, we really believe that. We don't believe that life is just some random series of days strung together for no purpose and no meaning and no reason. Make no mistake, we believe for sure that there is a purpose and a meaning and a reason for this all. Jesus has a life for us. And it's not a life where everything is going to be perfect, we see problems going around. There's things like we just talked about, about the Ukraine. In a much lesser, not important at all, in perspective kind of a thing, you might have even noticed like the price of gas when you were driving here this morning. It's a little bit high. So things like that will go on. But this life that Jesus has for us is a good life. It's a life in which there is a hope to be discovered and a peace to be experienced and a joy to, to know and see. It's, there's a power to be lived by. There is an identity for us to be discovered. It is a whole life, a full life, a good life. And that's the life Jesus has for us. And you know what? That life is actually all about him. He is the center of it all. It is all about coming to Jesus, trusting in Jesus, being saved by Jesus, walking with him, abiding in him, drawing our strength from him, doing the works that he has for us to do. That's the life. It's all about Jesus. And what we're going to see today in God's word as we talk about this life, that's the life that I want to live. I hope that you want to live the life that God has for you. Does somebody here today want that life for themselves? Good. What we're going to see in God's word today is that sometimes the, the, our experience of this life comes down to the condition of our heart. Somebody say the heart. When you talk about the heart in scripture, it's not usually talking about the physical organ that pumps blood through your body, right? Usually the heart is spoken of in the scriptures metaphorically. And it's spoken of as the very center of yourself, the, the wellspring of your very soul. It's not a peripheral issue. The heart is the very center of yourself, according to the scriptures. The heart influences our decisions and our actions and our words and our thoughts and our priorities, it's kind of like, how many of you guys have a cell phone? Everyone, exactly. And even if you've got like a little flip phone from 2005, a cell phone really is a pretty cool thing, right? This can do a lot of stuff. I could like take some time and go on the internet here while I'm talking to you. I could play a game. There's GPS tracking in this. There's the ability to call or text people. I was also thinking this week, if you had the original iPhone or iPod Touch, there was that app that made it look like a glass of beer that you could tip up and it looked like you were drinking it. So that was very useful for us all. Your phone can do a lot of really amazing things, but if the core of it or the heart of it or the battery or maybe your SIM card or the wiring inside is bad, your phone isn't gonna really be able to do that much. Or if you've like dropped it in the water before or something. I've done that. You probably have too. If the, if the heart of your phone is no good, it doesn't matter all the stuff that it should be able to do and you should be able to experience through it. Your experience of your phone is going to be pretty minimal. 
That's kind of like how it is with our human heart. That's why it says in Proverbs 4.23 that we are to keep our heart with all vigilance. How much vigilance? All vigilance. For from it flow the springs of what? Life. That's tied into the quality and the experience of this life that Jesus has for us. Let me say it this way. If our heart as Christians is positioned right before God, that's going to position us to experience more of the life he has for us. But if our heart is bad or corrupt before God, that's going to position us to not experience as much of the life, the quality of the life that he has for us. So... I'm going to invite you now to turn in your Bible to John chapter 3, because we are in a series right now going through this whole book of the Bible verse by verse. It's been great so far. The last couple weeks have been really encouraging, amen? It's been really good. And we're in John 3, 22 today. And what we're going to see in verses 22 through 36, we're going to see two hearts on display. One of them, I call it the heart that we often have. The other one is the heart that we ought to have. Got it? Capiche? Okay, so let's get into this then. We're going to start out in verse 22. We're going to talk about the heart that we often have. Spoiler alert, it's a prideful heart. Somebody says, I don't like where this is going. Well, you will. That's okay. Verse 22, it says this, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. Sidebar, I don't know about you, I don't find myself thinking a lot about the fact that Jesus was baptizing. I came across that this week and I thought, I haven't really thought of that much. Although it says in John 4 too that he himself didn't actually do the baptisms, he sort of oversaw his disciples administering these baptisms. But anyway, it says, John, John the Baptist, was also baptizing at Anon near Salim. That was a place along the Jordan River south of the Sea of Galilee because water was plentiful there. It's a little bit of a clue or an implication that they were baptizing by immersion. That's how we do baptisms up in here. We don't like sprinkle. We would dunk someone in the tank because that's what's in view here. Anyway, not the main point. Just wanted to stop on that. It says, for... Uh, People were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. That's an account that we don't cover in the Gospel of John, but it's in some of the other Gospels. John the Baptist got imprisoned and eventually executed in prison, all because he spoke out against the corruption and the sin and the wickedness of the king of the day. There's probably a lesson in there for us. It'll be a lesson for another day, but it's there nonetheless. Now, here's where we get into it. Here's where we're going. Verse 25 says... Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, that would be Jesus, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. That's the meat of where we're going in this. We don't know a lot about this Jew that's mentioned. Perhaps they were a Jewish religious leader or someone that was well acquainted in the scriptures or in the law, what have you. doesn't really specify, but they get into a discussion, this Jew and John's disciples, about purification. Somebody say purification. Purification is something that every single person in the world needs, by the way, because we were created to be in proximity to God. This life is about walking with him and being in relationship with him after all, but we have sort of short-circuited our ability to do that because of our sin. We have all sinned, and sin is imperfection. God is perfection, so sin 
separates us from God. It separates us from the life we were meant to live. And only through some sort of purification can we be restored and brought into God's presence and be able to live the life that he has for us to live. That's where this dispute comes about. The people are saying, well, what's the right way to be purified or cleansed or made right or made new? You've got John's baptism over here, but now people are starting to go to Jesus. There's the dispute. I would submit this to you, though. There's something else going on here more than meets the eye. What looks like a dispute or a disagreement over the method of purification, I would submit to you what's actually going on here is that John the Baptist's disciples were jealous. They were jealous. Because you can kind of see it in their answer. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, that Jesus guy, look, He's baptizing, and all are going to him. You can almost read the panic in their voice there, right? They're saying, look, people have been coming to us, and we've read about that in other weeks. John was this like kind of local celebrity. People were coming from all across the region to see him and to be baptized by him, but they're saying, look, our ministry is getting cut into, our influence, our renown, and they didn't like that, and that's where the conflict started. And if we were going to be really, really honest this morning, no one will have to confess out loud, don't worry, that sometimes the path that we take in our lives, or at least I do, I've got a full-length mirror in my office, someone can just go pry that off the wall and stand it here and I'll preach to myself today anyway. Sometimes here's the path that we take. I know I'm talking to somebody because you're human beings. Sometimes things are going along just fine for us in our lives. We're feeling blessed. We're sensing the presence of the Lord. Awesome, praise his name. But then someone around us or near us or close to us gets blessed. And we get threatened by that. And we get mad about that. Even though things were going okay for us. That's happened to me. I'm not real proud of that, but that's happened to me. And that's jealousy, friends. That's what it is. You guys are smart people. You know about jealousy. Not because you've experienced it, but you've read about it somewhere that other people have experienced it. Thank you. Jealousy is, jealousy is when you burn hot for something that you don't have and someone else has. It's that deep yearn in your soul. You just feel unease and unsettled because I don't have something that I think I deserve and that person has it and it's not fair. That is jealousy. And that seems so elementary school, doesn't it? Yeah, I used to feel that way when I was eight. What about when I was 28? What about when you were 48 or 58 or however old you are today? And there are signs of jealousy that come up in our lives, just like what we see here. Do you yearn for things? Don't answer this out loud, but do you yearn for things that other people have? Do you find yourself spending more time preoccupied with what others have than what God has given you? Do you find yourself sometimes that twinge of unhappiness when someone around you gets blessed and you perceive that you haven't been blessed? Do you feel sometimes like God owes you something? You're entitled. Those are all signs of jealousy. And the thing about jealousy that's really tragic is this. It's a thief. Jealousy is a thief. One thing it steals from us is our joy. Because God has blessed all of us in many ways. Even if your life seems no good right now, 
let me just tell you, you're still blessed. God has blessed you. But what jealousy does is it takes our focus off the blessing, off the provision, off the hand of God. It focuses it somewhere else. And rather than us giving thanks for that blessing and being secure in the provision of the Lord, it doesn't even bring us to a neutral state, right? It's not like, oh, I, I could have been here, but I was jealous and it brought me here. No, it's I could have been here, but not only am I not neutral, I'm like down here. I'm unhappy. I'm not feeling joyful. It's the double whammy. It steals the joy from us. And that happens to John's disciples right here. Their situation was actually a joyous occasion. They got to be part of the ministry of John the Baptist, who was a long-anticipated, prophesied-about figure who got to come and take part in ministry that was so much bigger than himself, and they got to be part of the ushering in and the paving the way for the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. That's a joyous thing, but they missed it because all they could see was their influence. They were perceiving that that was slipping away. Missed opportunity for them. So that's why jealousy is so bad. Even though it's fueled by a desire and a yearning for more, you actually end up settling for much less. That's a problem. Jealousy gets worse, though. It doesn't just stop there. Jealousy is sort of a, this is a cheesy expression. Couldn't think of a different one. Forgive me. It's sort of almost like a gateway kind of a thing. It leads to other things. How many of you, you had a parent that told you this expression? If you choose the behavior, you choose the punishment, consequences. Some of you watch Dr. Phil. That's cool. You choose the behavior, you choose the punishment, or you choose the consequences. In other words, if you do this thing, whatever results come about because of that, you brought them on yourself because you chose to do the thing in the first place jealousy is kind of like that. It brings on other things. There's a verse, it's in James chapter 3, verse 16. Very sobering verse, actually. It says that where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Notice how that doesn't say there may be disorder or there could conceivably become some disorder. No, it says there will be. When you behave in a jealous way, when you let that occupy your heart in a chronic manner, there will be, saith the Lord, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So in your life, if you look around at yourself, at your life, at your circumstances, and you say that there is disorder, things are out of control in my life right now, things are in shambles, it's a tire fire, I'm a hot mess, it's, it's crazy and chaotic, even though it doesn't seem like it's connected, look what the Lord says, it might have started with jealousy. I find that very interesting. If you have found in your life or in your heart that just some wickedness has kind of cropped up. Again, I don't know about you, I've had times in my life where I just realize some of the things I'm saying and some of the thoughts that come into my mind and some of the inclinations of my heart and I go, oh my word, they're just wicked. They're wicked. Where has that come from? Well, it may have been from jealousy. Even if we can't see the connection, there it is. If we end up in our lives locked into some chronic pattern of sin, maybe it's a sin you didn't used to struggle with. You were fine in that area, but all of a sudden now, oh, I just, I'm into this thing and I can't get out of it. That may have started from a place of jealousy and selfish ambition. I find that very, very interesting. But that compounds the problem of jealousy. But it gets even worse than that while I'm encouraging you here on this. It gets even worse than that. Because jealousy 
is actually not even the root issue here. It's not even our biggest problem here. We've had the conversation lots of times about the fruit and the root, right? We've talked about that. There are certain things in our lives that appear as fruit. They started or had their origin from something else. And just like a plant that has a root and it sprouts and it blossoms and it grows and then you get to see something on the end of the branch, that's kind of like how sin and certain things are in our lives. Jealousy is a fruit. It's not the root. It came from somewhere. It grew from somewhere. And where that came from and grew out of the root of jealousy is pride. It's pride. And pride is that so dangerous mentality that says, in all things, I come first. I am most important. I should be honored. I am significant. I should be blessed. I should be glorified. It's that school of thought. It's that way of thinking and living that says the world revolves around me. It's that path of self-absorption and self-obsession and self-righteousness. And again, if we're being honest, we've all been here. Nobody got my full-length mirror yet. I asked you nicely for it. We've all been here. And it, it, it can actually, if we kind of get into this and start to try to root out pride in our lives, it can be really discouraging because if you're like me, you start to realize that under every rock, around every corner, it seems like that reality of pride, that animal of pride is trying to rear its ugly head in my life. No matter what I do, it's just right there. And the reason is, it's because we're combating against the flesh, right? You read that in the scriptures. Even as Christians, we've been saved, we've been changed, we've been given a new heart. We have the Holy Spirit, awesome, but we still wage war against the flesh. That's what it says in Romans 7. There's always that battle, that conflict. And the heart of flesh, the realm of the flesh, the reality of the flesh is that it is incredibly prideful. The heart of flesh is, is, is bent and set on itself. Its, its headlights, rather than pointing out into the road, are inverted in on itself. Our sinful nature, our heart of hearts in and of ourselves is prideful. Our heart is sick, it's wicked, it's corrupt. And it brought to mind this verse from James chapter 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud. He opposes the proud. Now, answer me this. This is not a trick question. As a Christian, is God for you? Yes, he is. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's not as though in our lives as Christians, if you mess up or you sin or you drop the ball or you're a little prideful, God's going to boot you out or you can like lose your salvation or something like that. No, God is for you as a Christian. But at the very same time, in a manner of speaking, God could be against you. God could be opposing you. God could literally be blocking you from things in your life because he opposes the proud. When I act pridefully, God's not going to bless that. Judge Judy says, I'm not going to reward you for doing the wrong thing. Again, God loves you. God is for you. God wants to bless you. God has a life for you, but he's not going to open up his hand and give you the fullness of that life, the fullness of that blessing, the fullness of his presence when we are steeped in pride. He wants that badly to root pride out of our lives that he says, I'll actually butt heads with you if I have to. So this obviously is not something that we want to do. We do not want to occupy ourselves with a prideful heart. It robs us of the life that God has for us. It robs the church of unity 
and fellowship and togetherness because we're all just thinking about ourselves if we're prideful. It ruins our witness. It ruins our serving others because if we're prideful, we don't primarily care about other people. If we're really caught up in pride, we might not even really care. Yeah, so what? That person out there doesn't know Jesus. So what? They're going to hell. I'm focused on myself. It's wicked. It's terrible. Pride is not where we need to camp out. In fact, a prideful heart is something to be repented of. We'll come back to that. What I want to do now, since I've been encouraging you so much so far, let's flip the script a little bit here. That's the heart that we often have, if we're being really honest. I want to talk about the heart that we ought to have. So, in verse 27, in response to John's disciples coming up, being in a tizzy about everyone's going to Jesus, we're losing our influence, our ministry's slipping away, John is going to answer. And his answer is so profound. It is so timely and so something that we need in our lives in 2022 as believers today. It's going to reveal his heart. And spoiler alert, it's a humble heart. Somebody say humble. Look at what he says right from the beginning. I love this. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing, even one measly little crumb, unless it is given to him from heaven. What a place to begin. You can't have anything, anything good in your life, friends. You need to understand it's come from the hand of God. It didn't come from a friend or a family member. It didn't originate with you. It wasn't because you used your money and your wealth and your resources to go buy something. No, every good and perfect gift in your life has come from the hand of God. And when we get onto that program, when we can really remind ourselves of that, it changes our perspective. It changes the way we think. Therefore, it changes the way we live. See, John's disciples, they're focused on they're getting a raw deal, it seems to them. Every follower is leaving. Matter of fact, John the Baptist is about to drop right off the scene entirely in this book. He's referenced a few times from here to the end of this Gospel of John, but he's not going to speak again in this book. And he's been pretty central so far. He's about to go out of it. And John said, you know what? These people that I've ministered to, this influence that I may have had, this good stretch I've been on of ministry, I only had it because God gave it to me in the first place. So what do I have to complain about? What do I have to gripe about? When you realize that everything that you have in your life comes from God, you can start to realize, oh, God is my source. God knows my needs. God's given me everything I have. So I don't have to put my trust and my faith and my hope in these resources that God has given me because God himself is my source. That's who I want to trust in. When you remember that God has given you everything that you have, it allows you to give thanks when a blessing comes and not despair when the blessing goes away. Some of you guys have seen this in various ways in your lives. Sometimes the blessing that God gives you is supposed to just last for a season. Some things are enduring, they go on and on, but sometimes it's for a season. I was thinking about it this week. I had a couple of really good friends when I was a little kid. They moved in down the street or down the hill, and we were super close for like two years. Big blessing for me, and then their family moved away. And that wasn't all that fun. But I can look back on that now and go, wow, I'm so thankful for that. I'd rather have had those two short years than not have them at all. That was a blessing for me. Sometimes, so it is in our lives. God gives you a blessing, and if you're so set on the blessing, if your hope is in the blessing, when that thing goes away, you're going to be crushed. You're going to be devastated. 
But when you remember, hey, that came from God in the first place. Every blessing comes from him. And I think it's in the book of Job. It says the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. When you have that kind of a perspective, it allows you to enjoy the blessing while you have it and not despair over it when it goes away. And you can trust, Lord, okay, I didn't really want to lose that, but I'm just trusting you got something else for me because God is good. You know that God is good today, right? Good. I heard an, oh yeah, that was the right answer. Love it. When you remember that everything you have comes from God, you can remember that God is in control. He is over it all. He is sovereign. You can remember, oh, he's taken care of my needs this far. He's supplied me everything I need. Is my life perfect? Do I have everything that I think I want? Maybe not, but God's taking care of me. I don't have to worry. He's for me. He's good. I don't have to stress out and fret and worry because God is going to supply my needs. Like that is a mindset shift for a lot of Christians. It's a big shift. When we remember that everything we have comes from God, ultimately it helps us keep our focus on him and not on ourselves. That's a way of combating the pride in our hearts. I love that. John goes on in verse 28. He says, you guys bear me witness yourselves that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. We've seen that language time and again in this gospel of John. John the Baptist says, I've told you all along, it's not about me. It's never been about me. Again, when we keep that mindset, it's not about me. It's not about you, Braden. It puts into perspective for us. And I love what he says in verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. That language of bride and bridegroom is all through the scriptures. Jesus is referred to as the bridegroom. And the bride is the the church. You're very smart people. You're very smart. Yeah, it's the church. Notice John the Baptist isn't referring to himself in either of those. He said, it's not about me. It's about the bride and the bridegroom. Now, matter of fact, he goes on to say, the friend of the bridegroom, that's John. He's talking about himself there, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. What he says is, I'm a secondary figure here. All these people that I've been reaching, all this ministry that I've been doing, they're not my people, John says. They're Jesus' people. See, John would baptize people, and it says in other places that it was a baptism of repentance. People would come to pledge a clear conscience before God. That baptism of John pointed forward to Jesus and the salvation that comes through him. He said, they're not my people. I'm the secondary character. You can see in that wedding language there, actually I'll ask it this way on the wedding day you've all been to weddings who is the wedding day about not a trick question there's two people the wedding day is about it's the the bride and the groom therefore the wedding day is not about the friends of the bride and groom it's not about the family of the bride and groom it's not about the guests that have been invited glad you're there not about you though and I'm sure we've all heard of the drama that can come Maybe you've seen this. I hope that you've not participated in it. The drama that comes when someone who's not the bride or groom on a wedding day takes it upon themselves to make it all about them. It's the worst. It's annoying. It's not about you. Get out. Stop. On the wedding day, it was just, we're just gonna, you guys know wedding etiquette, but we're going to talk about it anyway. We're just right here. On the wedding day, if you are not the bride or the groom, you have a very specific job at that wedding very specific job. It's to rejoice with them. Rejoice with them. It doesn't matter if you're unhappy. 
It doesn't matter if the wedding is too long or the wedding is too short or it's hot outside or it's cold out or the venue's terrible or the food is terrible. Get over yourself. It's not about you. And we've all been to weddings like that. Let's just be straight. We've all been to weddings where it's like, you're checking your watch, like, oh, come on, like, oh. We gotta get over ourselves. It's not about you. Let that minister to you today. If you're really the friend of the bride or the groom, you're gonna take it upon yourself to rejoice with them. That's what John is doing here. Even though he could conceivably be observed to maybe be a bit low, you could maybe see John's losing his influence. He's fading off the scene. He's about ready to not be in this book anymore even. He rejoices in that. In fact, he says, look at that. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He says, I don't have just a little joy over this. I got a lot of joy over this, rejoicing in Christ, which brings us to verse 30. My humble opinion, verse 30 is one of the single most important verses in all of the Bible for us as Christians. So important. He must increase, but I must decrease. I want you to say that with me. Oh, we lost it. There we go. Say it. He must increase but I must decrease. You know we're doing it one more time to sink in. Here we go. He must increase, but I must decrease. Listen to me, friends. That ought to be the heart of every single Christian. That ought to be our heart right there. When he says that, the he, by the way, is Jesus, of course. What, what that's saying is not, I can somehow cause Jesus to be more or less of himself than he really is. No, not at all. What he's saying is that I can reflect him more increasingly in my life. I can let it be all about Jesus in my life. The, the things that I say, the thoughts that I think, the things that I do, the priorities that I prioritize, let there be less of me and more of Jesus. That is the heart. And that's really what Christian humility is. You've heard the expression, humility is not thinking less of yourself. Some people try to do that over their cooking, by the way. Maybe you're one of those. Do you ever see those people? This is just a not relevant sidebar because we're right here. Some people are great cooks or they bake things well. And you know how it is? You, you put the fork in and you eat it. Oh, this is great. Oh, no, no, no. It's terrible. I don't know why we do that. It's like a false humility. It's not that. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And I would add to that and thinking of Jesus more. That's what it is. The world ultimately does not need to know how awesome you think you are. <laughs> that ministered to somebody. But it's true. Look, that's how the rest of the world lives. We're trying to promote ourselves and get ourselves noticed and ahead. The world doesn't need to know how awesome you think you are. The world needs to know how amazing Jesus is. So that is John's heart. And let that be our heart as well. You might say, though, well, why do I care about John? I got my own life. I got my own problems. Why do I give a rip about what John says and what John's heart is? I'm going to tell you why you should care. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. There's a really, really interesting verse about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. This is coming from the mouth of Jesus Christ. He says, truly I say to you, among those born of women... There has arisen no one greater than no one greater than John the Baptist. 
I find that very interesting. Jesus is saying, apart from myself, there has been no one more significant, no one more influential in this world, in the history of this world than John the Baptist. Pretty high praise, right? Especially coming from Jesus. In other words, he's saying there is a way that you can be great. There is a way that you can be significant. There is a way that you can make an impact. But it's not about furthering yourself. It's about following in the footsteps of John and saying, less of me, more of Jesus. And I love what he says. He says, no one's greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least, least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Isn't that cool? He's talking to us. We belong to the kingdom of heaven as Christians. And he's saying that we can have an impact. We can make a difference. We can live with gusto and power. We can experience true and lasting joy and purpose that endures. But we cannot do it, friends, when we're prideful. We cannot do it when we're prideful. A humble heart is the heart we ought to have. We've got a few verses left to cover this morning. And what I want to talk about in these, it's the key to it all. You, you take into consideration what we've heard so far. Okay, I shouldn't have a prideful heart. I should have a humble heart. How do I enact that and, and get that going in my life? What's the key? There is a key to it all, and the key is to behold the glory of Jesus Christ. The key is to behold the greatness of Jesus Sometimes the reason why we struggle with pride in our lives is because we haven't looked on true greatness for a while. I'll give you an example. When I started high school, uh, our football team, I went to KV, our football team was really, really, really good. I was not on it, in case you're wondering. But I was the greatest non-participant the school had ever seen. So... I wear that like a badge of honor. Our football team was really good. We won almost every game that year. We rolled over the opponents. It was really good. And I, it's been a couple of years now. I don't really remember what the, the term was, but we won the whole championship, the big thing at the end of the year. We were like on top. We were a bit of a big fish in a small pond. And the problem was, after that year, and we'd had a few years of pretty good success, the powers that be came along and said, we're bumping KV up to the next division. We probably entered into that pretty pridefully. Well, it's all right. We wiped the floor with these guys. We'll beat these. No, 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 no. We're rolling with the big dogs now when I was in grade 10. And I kid you not, to my recollection, we did not win a single game all year. We were absolutely just laughed out of every game. And we were so demoralized, I kid you not, we didn't even have a football team when I was in grade 11. Completely decimated. Because we got to see what true greatness was. We got to see something that was beyond our little four walls and our little bubble. And we were put in our place pretty quick. Sometimes the reason that we are prideful is because we're living in a bubble. And all we're really seeing is how great we think we are. But when you turn your eyes upon Jesus Christ and look full in his wonderful face, listen to me, in the very best, most wonderful, most freeing way possible, we're put in our place pretty quick. Because once you see 
how amazing Jesus is and just sit at his feet and be in his presence and behold his glory, you realize how small you are in the best possible way. So it says in verse 31, John's going on, he says, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth, he's talking about himself here, belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He says, hey, no matter how smart you think I am, no matter how significant or influential or impactful you think I am, I'm nothing. I'm nobody compared to this guy. It says, he who comes from heaven is above all. It goes on to say later in verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things, how many things? All things into his hand. That's language of authority. Authority. Jesus has authority. Matter of fact, Jesus has all authority according to Matthew chapter 28. He is above it all. He is sovereign. He is greater. He is on top. He is ruling and reigning on a throne as we speak. And the, the good bonus for us in that, I'll remind you again, he's good. He's good to us. He has plans for us, not to harm us, but to give us a hope and a future. Jesus is supposed to be on the throne of your heart. That is where he rightfully belongs. He is supposed to be holding the reins or driving the steering wheel. Here's the problem. We try to take the reins for ourselves without fail. We try to yank them away from Jesus. Even though he ought to be ruling and reigning in our lives, we say, nope, I'm going to drive this. Because after all, it's my life, right? Eh, wrong, Christian, it's not your life not yours. It says in Colossians 3.3 that if you're a Christian, you have died. If you're a Christian, you're dead. The old you is dead and gone. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, you're his. It's him working through you. And when we try to grab the reins and grab the steering wheel and take control, it, it in a manner of speaking, blocks the rule and reign of Jesus as he rightfully wants to exercise in our lives. You block him. Sometimes he's happy to give us the reins. And what I mean by that is if you read it in a place like Romans chapter 1, it talks about how sometimes we're so bent and determined and set on doing things our way or being in control, whatever that means, or sinning or doing whatever. It says that God will hand us over to those things sometimes. He'll just say, look, if you want to crash the car so bad, I'm driving, I'm doing a fine job, but if you want to crash the car so bad, here you go. You're going to take the reins. You're going to run smack into a tree and hurt yourself. I'm going to be right here next to you, and I'll clean you up, and I'll fix you up, and I'll heal you. But that's a dumb decision to make. He says, let me drive. Let me hold the reins. That is the pathway to experiencing this life he has for us. It's all about giving your life to Jesus and continually yielding and submitting to his authority. might not sound all that glamorous, but that's literally the best life. Get off the throne. It ain't yours, friend. Now, it goes on to say in verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. That sounds, I don't know, kind of like today. People don't really care about Jesus. They say, I don't need that. My authority in my own life is plenty good. No thanks. Don't need to be saved. If God's even real, no worries. That describes today. But look what he says in verse 33. Whoever does receive his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. 
God is true. When you receive his testimony, when you receive the testimony of the gospel, God is shown to be true in you. When you believe and accept and receive this gospel that says there is a God and he created this whole deal, including you, this gospel that says even though we were meant to be in relationship with God and close to God, we've sinned and we've blown that and we've distanced ourselves from God and we've uh, subjected ourselves to death and punishment and condemnation apart from God, death in our sins. When we, uh, this gospel that says though that God loves us so much that he doesn't want us to remain in that problem, in that situation we're in. He wants us to be forgiven and saved and set free. So he gives of himself. He gives of his very best. Jesus, his son, who comes to the earth, lives the life that we have not lived, a sinless life. He dies a criminal's death on a cross in our place for our sins, not his own because he had none. He dies, and he says, it is finished. He takes on the whole weight of God's wrath for our sin. He's buried in the ground, but he rises from the grave because he had no sin. The grave had no claim on him. He is greater. He is more powerful. He is victorious. And the gospel that says, if we then will trust in Jesus and believe in what he has done and accept him as our Lord and Savior and repent of our sins and turn to him, we can be saved. We can be set free. We can be reborn. We can be made new. We can be changed. When you accept the gospel, and I'm not just talking some loose belief. Up, I remember we've talked about belief is all-encompassing. It involves every part of us. When we receive his testimony, when you believe in the gospel, guess what? It starts to change you. It starts to change you from the inside out. Jesus says, come to me just as you are, but I ain't going to leave you there. He starts to give us a new heart and new desires and a new nature. All of a sudden, the way that we're acting and speaking and living looks different. And guess who can see that? Everybody else around you. What I'm trying to get at is when you receive the testimony of Jesus, it's going to be proven by your life's work that God is who he says he is, that Jesus has done what he claims to have done. Is that good news for anybody today? Good. He goes on to say, For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now that phrase about he whom God sent, that's in the Gospel of John just about 40 times. It's in there a lot. Pay attention to it. He utters the words of God. You want to know why Jesus utters the words of God? Because he is God. Shocking. For he gives the Spirit without measure. You and I, this is good news for us, because we have the Holy Spirit as Christians, do we not? We do. Now, we have our days, we have our moments. I would like to think that I've been saved for 17 years. At least once or twice in those 17 years, I've yielded to the Spirit. I've seen the Spirit's power working through me. Maybe I've spoken in a way that's in accord with the Spirit. Maybe just like once, that'd be cool. Sometimes we don't yield to the Spirit and we go the other way. That's another sermon for another day. But look at Jesus. He's given the Spirit without measure. Jesus lived his life and did the ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit like no one else ever, ever. He is significant. You can't miss that. And it goes on to say in verse 36, just to sum it up very succinctly, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Very clear. I'll remind you, at the beginning we said life is not just some random series of days all strung together. 
God has a life for you. And that involves eternal life. Somebody say eternal life. Help me out. Eternal life. Someone even said it with gusto. Thank you, brother. I love that. Eternal life, as we've talked about, that's not just the passage of time, you know, after this life is over and we'll just go up into the sky somewhere and lots of time will go by. No, it's way more than that. It's also talking about not just the quantity of time, but the quality of life. That's eternal life. And one of my favorite verses, John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know God, to know God, to walk in relationship with him, to be in close proximity, to abide in Jesus. That is the essence of eternal life. And we're going to do that into forever, but it can start right now. Amen? We can have that today. And the only way to experience this life, the only path in which to get it, the only way you can live the life God literally created you to live is by believing in the Son. It's not by being a good person, going to church lots of times, maybe even singing at church, keeping your mask on at church, whatever, saying grace before the meal. That was funny. You're welcome. Um, it's not about any of that. It's not about your good works or your charming personality. The only way you can live the life God made for you is by believing in Jesus Christ, by accepting him as your Lord and Savior. I presume that most of us have done that in here today. But that's so key. There is no other way. There is no other path. It's always and only Jesus. The only alternative to believing in Jesus is unbelief. It's rejection. And it makes it very clear what's going to happen here. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you never accept him, if you never yield to him and get saved by him, yeah, you'll exist in this world. Lots of people just existing. But you will never be able to live the life God has for you. Your life on earth as a non-Christian might seem even pretty good. But it's never going to be everything that God created you to live. And then when this life is over... One day you're going to go and stand before God to be judged. We all are. And that day is either going to be really, really good for you or really, really bad for you. If you believe in Jesus, you're going to get to go and be with him. And the, the righteousness and the sacrifice of Jesus is going to cover over you. So even though I've done lots of bad, sinful, dumb, stupid things, that's going to be a good day for me because of Jesus. Is that true for anybody else here? But on that day, if you've never known Jesus, if you've never been saved by Jesus, the wrath of God remains on you. See, when we sin in this life, the Bible says that's akin to storing up wrath for ourselves. And when we stand before God, that wrath's got to be paid for. You can either let Jesus pick up your tab or you can pay for it yourself. And if you're in that position, you will be cast out. You will be convicted. You will be sentenced. You will be condemned. Hell is a real place, friends. We're not messing around here. But you don't have to go there. You don't have to have that. Because Jesus invites us all. Come to me. Give your heart to me. Be saved by me. It's so simple, but it's right there. Let me wrap this up today. It's all about the heart. It's all about the heart. Don't answer this out loud, but how's your heart today? Is your heart one that has yielded to the rule and reign of Jesus? Is your heart one that has accepted who he is, what he's done for you? Is your heart a heart that's been saved and cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Maybe it is. Like I say, lots of you guys are 
born-again Christians. You're saved up in here, and that's awesome. But again, I'd ask you, how's your heart today? Are we prideful? Are we humble? Are we wrestling with that? You see, nothing is going to short-circuit God's will for your life faster than pride. Nothing is going to hold you back, keep you immature, keep you in a rut, quite like pride as a Christian. Flip the script, though. Nothing is going to unlock doors in your life as a Christian better than humility. Nothing is going to position you to see God move in your life better than a humble heart before the Lord. Nothing is going to position you at that intersection of God's will and God's power quite like a humble heart. And it all starts, like we said, by acknowledging who Jesus is and by beholding him in his glory and his splendor. I know I'm talking to Christians today, and I don't mean this wrong. Even though you believe, even though you know, even though you've accepted this, when's the last time you really took a good hard look at Jesus and just camped out at his feet, spent time beholding who he is? That is the, that is the antidote to pride. That is the best way to get rid of it. And what God is doing today, right now, in this moment, he's extending grace to us. It's amazing how God does that. Even if you're coming up in here today, my full-length mirror still never arrived. Must have got lost. Even if you've been completely prideful in your life lately, just completely blowing it, not going well. Listen to me. God has grace for you. And he's inviting you today. Give that up. Turn to him. He's giving us an opportunity right now in the house while we're together to repent of our pride, to repent of our selfish, prideful heart. And when we do that, when we honestly get before the Lord and say, Lord, here I am. I know I've been the worst. I've been all about myself. He's going to meet you in that moment. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He gives grace to the humble, it says in his word. He's going to work on you. He's going to change you. He's going to start shaping and molding you. I will tell you this. It is possible to improve in this area of pride. I'm far from perfect, but I will tell you this. I am not the person I used to be. I am not the prideful person that I used to be. And it's not because I've tried really hard and tightened my shoes a little tighter. It's because of Jesus. It is possible. Ultimately, we won't be tempted to focus on how amazing we think we are if we're caught up in how amazing he is. But it all comes down to our heart. Will you trust in Jesus and put him first in yours?